Uh, there was a day when Jesus was teaching and traveling from village to village. And as he went along, the crowds were growing. Uh, and he was developing men and women to go with his message. One day, a man stood up in one of those crowds with a question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I think he put into words what a lot of the people in that group were probably thinking. Uh, where do I find real life? A uh, life which is now and forever. A life which is so strong that it's even stronger than death itself. I know that you have that, Jesus, and I want to know where a person would get it. Uh, he asked that question. And now all eyes turn to Jesus. Now, Jesus was a very clever teacher. I think anyone who spends time truly seeking to understand what Jesus said and how he said it will agree. He was amazing. Uh, he responded to this question as everyone looked at him with a question for the, the questioner. Uh, what do you read in the law? He asked this man. Uh, it turns out the person who asked the question was an expert in the scriptures. He knew God's word well. And so Jesus asked him, what do you read here about where to find this life? The man's response, I want you to look at it, comes in Luke chapter 10, 27. Here's what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The answer to the question of where life is found in a word is love. Love God. Love the neighbors that God has put in your path. And then, and only then, will you find true life. The life that you yourself know you were made for. Whatever your disposition right now is toward church or God or Jesus, whatever that is, the truth about you as a person who has a human heart is that deep down inside you know it. You were made for love, to give and receive love. That's the answer that this man gave to Jesus' question about what do you read in the law? And now everyone looks to see how Jesus will respond to this answer in verse 28. Jesus tells him, you have given the right Answer. Can you imagine having given the right answer in front of a giant crowd to Jesus? I'd feel good, right? Do this and you will live. Let's be simple. Love and you will live. Love others and you will find what you know deep down inside you've been looking for all along. And it seems always to stay one step ahead of you because you're looking in the wrong places, Jesus says. Love and then you'll find it. You know who was in the crowd that day was a man named Peter. If you've been coming to Renaissance for the last few months, you know that we've been together as a church dwelling on some teaching from Peter. I think that day Peter was there taking notes so that when he wrote his letters, the first and second letter, which are now in our New Testament, they surely were shaped by Jesus most profoundly. And I think even this scene itself for Peter made an impression on him. Uh, what we've been studying together, 2 Peter chapter 1, especially verses 5 through 7, are a list where Peter enumerates the virtues which make faith work. Uh, this is a review for some uh, visitors, okay? And if you've been here, this is not bad for you to hear yet again. Peter was convinced that the gift of faith was just that, a gift. No one does anything to earn that. 
But Peter also knew that a person can know about Jesus and believe and still yet find that their faith is ineffective and unfruitful, that it doesn't make the difference in their lives that they wish it would. And, and, and the person who suffers the most is you, but also the world around you because, well, it's supposed to say what the world needs, but imagine it said it there in nice yellow font. What the world needs is men and women whose faith works. And so Peter, uh, knowing this, wrote, in his second letter, in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, the following, he wrote this, you must make every effort to support your faith. Now, without effort on our part, faith is unsupported. And, and how you support it are these virtues, goodness. And you must support your goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection. That's a Greek word for love, Philadelphia. We talked about that last week. And you must support your mutual affection with love. If friendship, our theme last week, is the foundation of this house of faith that we're called to build, love is the bedrock upon which that foundation is built, and nowhere else. Peter knew it. Because Jesus taught it and exemplified it with his own life that the most important thing is love. That if only you will love, then you will find real life. If you stop always asking what you can get and instead turn your vision to the world around you, the people who are close to you and say, how can I love these people? Then you will find real life. That's what Jesus taught that day. The whole crowd was there as the man heard from Jesus. You've given the right answer. Go do this and you will live. Now everyone turns back to see this questioner one more time and he opens his mouth yet again. And now he puts... Another question to Jesus. And this is Luke 10, 29. He asks, and who is my neighbor? This is not a stellar performance on his part. He's heard that everything comes down to loving God and your neighbor, and right away, he wants to know, who don't I have to love? Because he, maybe he doesn't get along with his neighbors. And this is real because we ourselves in this place might be ready to say, love is all you need. I love that. It's great. Yes. And then who, who do I get to have a pass for? Because every one of us has someone in our lives and we're thinking, surely I don't have to love them. And that's what this man is thinking. And that's why he asks his question. Now, Jesus is not only a, a phenomenal teacher. He also can read exactly what's going on in every human heart. And he knows that the motivation for this man's question is not pure. And he knows he needs now in this moment to give a response, not just to this man, but to the crowd. Because Jesus is aware of the fact that everyone's listening. And he's just made this magnificent answer that love is all you need, but now he wants to know who don't I have to love. And Jesus, instead of answering with just a direct list, Here, here's what constitutes a neighbor, he tells a story. And it is a magnificent story. It's the very best story, I think, for us to land on as we've been considering together what the world needs. Most of you will have heard of the Good Samaritan. That's the story which Jesus tells in response to this man's question, who is my neighbor? I want you to know this, that most of us have too small an understanding of that story. We're in that story. We are. And I'm gonna show you this morning how. Jesus is in the story. I want you to see that too. The man who asked the question is there as well. But what you must do now is open your mind and your heart. Open it. 
wherever you are in faith. If you're a seasoned Christian who's been around the block more times than me, or you're a skeptic who's here nonetheless this morning, I want you to see the story that Jesus unfolds to teach. To teach what love looks like when love is the most important thing. Here's how his story begins. It's on verse 30 of chapter 10 in Luke. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him. They beat him. And they went away leaving him for dead. The setting of Jesus' story is a notorious road. Everyone who was listening would have known about the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. 18 miles this road wound through the desert mountains. A change in elevation of 3,200 feet. So difficult was this road that it was the favorite haunt of robbers. They knew that anyone who had to travel this road would be especially vulnerable. And so in the twists and in the caves, in the mountains, robbers would hide and wait for unsuspecting folk to come along so that they could overpower them, dehumanize them, that they could mete out upon them their violence and rob them and then leave them. And that's what happened to the man in the story which Jesus tells. And as I've said before amongst this group, the road is always a metaphor for life. And most listeners will hear as Jesus begins to unfold this tale of this unfortunate man, not just a story about one man, but rather their own story. Because everyone in that crowd would have known in one way or another how difficult life can be. How life can be like a journey on a road that you wish you did not have to go on, which is longer than you can manage and which has too many villains on it for you to handle on your own. Life often is dehumanizing and it beats us up. Am I telling the truth? If you, if you cannot say yet a hearty, yes, you are, I want you to understand that someday you will. And I mean it. Uh, the truth about life is that it's hard because life has many, many forces in it that are stronger than we are. Even when we're trying our very best to go the way that God wants us to go, we will find ourselves sometime overwhelmed by a hostile power that leaves us beaten and dehumanized and left for dead. For me, I remember it started in junior high. Anyone else remember junior high? Does it make you feel awful again? And I remember high school, my freshman year of high school, I was, I was just barely above five feet and I was in the early 90s in terms of pounds, praying God make me bigger. And I prayed that right through my senior year and I was five foot two when I graduated, 97 pounds at the beginning of senior year. And my nickname was Peewee. I loved being called Peewee. <laughs> It was like a, a journey on a road that was too much for me. I know some of you have to deal with that. And for different reasons. And you know what, adults? Imagine, imagine the teasing was online for everyone in the world to see at any second. You know how hard it is for young people now with the internet being what it is? Life is like the Jericho Road sometimes. And then when you grow up and you get done with high school, you get, a, you get done with college, you go off to a job and you're like, it's all gonna be awesome. Now I get a paycheck. And in two weeks, you're like, why did I go to college? Why did I end up here? And, and there are complications with work. You find someone to love and to love you back, but then they turn out to be someone different than you'd expected. And the next thing you know, you're in disarray because the person who's supposed to love you has turned their back on you. Life unfolds like this for many of us in so many ways. And, and the debris and the collateral damage is awful. 
Jesus' story about a man on the road being beat up is a story of what life can be like. Now, as he continues in his story, remember what the story's about, by the way? I want us to keep this in mind. The story's about what love looks like. As he continues to unfold the story, he introduces three new characters. The first two are characters who everyone in the, in the crowd would have imagined would be just what the injured man needs. They're religious figures. They're men of God. And, and, and everyone imagines the men who are following after God and are professional religious folks. They're the ones who are supposed to help, right? Here's what happens in the story. This is verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the man beat up, he passed by on the other side. The priest's job was to bring men and women into God's presence. Because the truth about all of us is that what we need more than anything else is to be close to God. Because God made us. And God knows everything about us. And God loves us more than we could ask or imagine. And he's waiting to receive us like beloved sons and daughters. But instead of going to this man who's hurt, the priest goes away from him on the other side of the road. And surely that must have been heartbreaking. Here, there's a second character who comes along in the next verse. This is verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The tribe of Levi was the tribe from which all of the priests came. The Levites were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle every time God's people had to fight a foe. They did almost the opposite of what the priests did. The priests brought people to God. The Levites brought God to people. Anyone here see Raiders of the Lost Ark? When they open that Ark and the faces melt? Nobody? Yes. Dun, 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 dun. This man also is a professional religious figure. This man also does no good to the man broken on the road. And I, I'll tell you, as a, a professional religious figure, it, it, it ruins my heart when I think of how many times the church doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is to help people who are broken on the road. And what the world needs is men and women and churches which are following after Jesus and doing what Jesus calls us to do. Here in Jesus' story are two massively disappointing travelers. But they're not the only two. There's a third one who comes along. And this is the Samaritan. And I have to tell you this before I read it. Because you won't have the reaction in your gut when you hear the word Samaritan that Jesus' first listeners would have had. For them, they all would have assumed that the reason the man was beat up was that probably the robbers were Samaritans. Samaritans were a race of people that in Jesus' day, it was okay to discriminate against. They were suspect. Uh, if, you, if you follow the New Testament carefully, you'll know there was one time when Jesus' followers were with him. They got near a village, and, and Jesus' disciples assumed that the reason they'd gone there is so Jesus could rain lightning down upon the village and burn it up. And they said, you want us to do that, Jesus? It was a Samaritan village. The Samaritan comes along the road, and I want you to see what happens then. This is verse 33. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. That's the opposite of going on the other side of the road. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. 
This figure, which Jesus creates for his story, it is a person whose actions are carefully designed by Jesus to show everyone who has eyes to see it what love actually looks like. Love, the kind of love that Peter wrote about, the kind of love that Jesus meant when he said, yes, it all does come down to love. It's a, a Greek word, agape. It means selfless benevolence for another person simply because it's good for them without any regard to how much it costs you and without any hopes of getting a reward. It's pure and true goodness, not for you, but for them. No matter how hard it is for you to do it, you do it because that's what love does. Not because you want to get something in return, but because it's the right thing to do. Your whole entire self tells you. That's agape. And what Jesus has done with his picture of the good Samaritan is to show everyone who have eyes opened and willing to see it what love actually looks like. It's, it's an action, not a verb. Uh, excuse me. It's an action and, and, and not a noun. And, and why am I trying to be grammatical at this moment? My goodness. <laughs> love is something that you do. And, and in, the, in the actions of the Samaritan, there are five things that I see, which I want us to see carefully. Five things which love does. If you would come back to the beginning of the scene, you'll see them and they'll teach us what love is. Love on which life is meant to be built. Okay, the first is already when the Samaritan gets on the road and encounters the presence of this needy man. The first thing that love does is love takes responsibility. It would have been easy, and it was easy for the priest and the Levite to see that man and say, that is not my problem. And strictly speaking, in some technical sense, they're correct. Uh, they didn't cause it. They have things to do. The priest has to get to the opera house to deliver a message on time. And so he walks on the other side, and so the Levite. But what the Samaritan does is he sees that need there and chooses practically to take responsibility for a problem which technically is not his. And so he goes toward that problem instead of away from it. Every one of us will know the impulse when a problem that's not strictly speaking ours emerges to say, well, that's not mine. That's someone else's. And to be frank, sometimes it's right to do that, right? You don't want to take responsibility for every problem. But the truth is you can never love unless you're willing to take responsibility for things which, strictly speaking, are, are not really your fault, you know when something goes wrong, the person who all they want to figure out is whose fault it is and make sure that it's not their fault? That is the exact opposite of love. Because love says first, there's a problem and I'm gonna choose to take responsibility for it. And I'll tell you right now, if we loved like that, the world would change. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. And we see this also in the Samaritan. Love gets its hands dirty. Those wounds there, on that traveler's body who's been stripped naked and beat up in the desert, they are disgusting. They will have already started to form uh, scabs and, and, and the blood has already started to congeal. Is it gross? Is it? Good, I'm trying to be gross. Maybe there's pus already. <laughs> but love is gross sometimes. This man takes out the oil because he has to massage the wounds in order to break up the clots because he has to get rid of them in order to clean the infection. And he pours out the wine because it's got alcohol, which is antiseptic, and he cleans it, and his hands are gross with someone else's mess. And love gets his hands dirty. 
Love sits still when two friends sit down at the dinner table and say, our marriage is such a mess and you have no idea how bad it is. And then it hits the fan and it gets all over everybody. But love stays put and gets messy with them. Love sticks right there with the friend when the addiction is finally unveiled and it is gross. But love stays. Love's committed. Love is right there with the person who's hard to be around because they've got so many problems. You're afraid that maybe they're gonna rub off on you, but love gets its hands dirty. And that's what we see secondly from this Samaritan. And I'm telling you again, what love needs is followers of Jesus who are willing to get their hands dirty with someone else's problem. That's also what love does. Here's the third thing that we see with the Samaritan. You have to use your imagination. An 18-mile road is so hard to walk that anyone who can afford an animal has one, and they ride on the back of that animal to make their way. And so it was for the Samaritan. But when he saw this man in his need, the Samaritan did what love does, which is that love trades places. And he put the man on his own animal, which means he will have to walk the rest of the road by himself there beside his animal. The Samaritan's life gets harder for the rest of the journey because he's decided to love this man who needs the animal that he could easily say, well, that's mine. He trades places with him. And you might have a life right now that is really great. You might be saying, I had some years behind me that were really difficult, but now I'm, where, I'm in the sweet spot. I'm where I want to be. And maybe this morning, love's invitation to you, the love where real life is, invites you to say, it's time for you to start doing a little less good so that someone else can be doing better. Love is the invitation to get off your own animal, that doesn't really work today, <laughs> to trade places, right? It's, it, it's, it's the invitation to trade places. Now, when the Samaritan trades places, he leads that man uh, from where he found him down the road until they come to an inn where the Samaritan now does the fourth thing, which love does. And this one, I want you to take this one deep because it's easy to think about how great love is, right? Because it makes you feel nice. And that's what most of the songs about love are about, how good it makes you feel until, of course, the feelings wear off, right? The, the fourth fact about love that we see from the Samaritan is that love costs you. It actually depletes your resources. It takes something from you. It's not first some childish emotion that you go after to get something for yourself. The Samaritan goes to the inn and has to pay for the man who was beat up because he's been robbed with his own money. He takes out two denarii. That's what a person can earn in two days of hard labor. And he pays for the man. He gives it to the innkeeper and now he has less money himself. And, and it's time for us to grow up when it comes to thinking about love, which is at the heart of the Christian message, and see that it is not first some warm feeling that we will get if only we believe in Jesus and say the right kind of prayers. It is rather an invitation to get busy divesting ourselves of the resources that we have which other people need because love costs you. And now, would you please do this? If you're married, would you think about your marriage? If you're gonna love that person, it's gonna cost you something. If you're a person who has good friends, it's gonna cost you something to be a friend to them. 
If you want to love the people where you work, and you should love them, do not do it so you get a reward yourself. Expect to feel like you've been depleted a bit after you love them, because love costs. Same with strangers. Love costs you. We see that also from the Samaritan. Isn't Jesus a great teacher? He is, right? The fifth thing that we see from the Samaritan about love comes from this little detail that the Samaritan, after paying the innkeeper, tells him, I'm going to come back later and you keep this guy here as long as it takes. Whatever the debt is, consider it mine. That is that love commits. Love says, I'm in this now. Now it's okay. I'm going to be in it come what may. It may turn out to be worse than I'd ever hoped, but I'm in it. I'm on the hook. It may turn out to be less rewarding than I'd always wished or been led to believe it would be, but no matter, I'm committing into this thing. I'm gonna be in this. Whatever it costs, I'll be there to pay when I come back. And that is the fifth thing that we learn about love as we look at this figure, the Samaritan. He is the one who shows us that love takes responsibility and gets its hands dirty and trades places and costs you and commits over time, not just now, but on into the future. How's that for an answer to the guy's question about who is my neighbor after all? It's a good answer, don't you think? Now let's picture ourselves there again. And now we ourselves have heard in this story, which is about life. We've heard in this story about what love looks like. And you know, I am absolutely convinced that everybody present in some way was thinking, I wish someone like that Samaritan would come into my life because I need to be fixed and I need help. And would you let yourself think about you? Don't think about the other people in your life who are worse off than you. Think about where you are. Jesus, after telling the story, asks another question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus has asked this man and everybody around him to speculate about the identity of the characters in the story. Think of that for a moment. Jesus is telling him, what matters right now is that you personally see who the characters in the story are meant to stand for. You, Jesus is thinking this about the man who asked the question, you are in my story. I've painted you into my story. And the truth about every one of us is that we're also in the story too. Luke, the narrator of this parable, decides to tell us a few details about the man who asked the question. He was a lawyer who knew the, the law well. But Luke also shared the motivation behind the question, who really is my neighbor? It was in verse 33. I didn't show it to you, but I want you to look up here. Uh, I'm sorry, not 33, my mistake. 29. When the man asked the question, it says here, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? To justify oneself is a phrase that has extremely heavy theological freight in the New Testament. Over and over again in the New Testament, 
Jesus and all the others who take the time to write what we have as our New Testament are very serious to show us what the outcome will be for anyone who tries to justify himself or herself before God. If you believe that this whole religious thing is really a program to teach you how to do the right thing so that God will accept you, what the New Testament tells you is you will 100% every single time fail miserably. If you try to go down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho on your life by yourself, no matter how smart you are, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter what the skills you have or the talents you have, if you try to do that life without God, the truth that the Bible presents is that what will happen to you is you will be beat up and left for dead on the road. And the only way for you to stand right before God is if you get help from the outside. Otherwise, you are guaranteed 100% of the time dead. Jesus has put the questioner in the story and he's the man who's been beat up on the road. And if he goes on trying to justify himself before God, the end will be a sure and certain death. And you know, there are a lot of people around us who though they live are really dead because of how far away they are from God and their problems. Do you know that? What Jesus sees in this man's question is the real heart of the matter is this man needs to see that he can never justify himself. What he needs is someone to come along the road and help him. What he needs is a good Samaritan to rescue him or he's dead otherwise. And you, this is the most important truth about you that I'm going to tell you. Actually, it's the second most important for you to gather everything that you can from this entire series about what the world needs without the help that comes only and exclusively from Jesus in God's grace, you are going to die on this road. And here is where I get to tell you that Jesus also paints himself into this picture. This is absolutely not a story about how to become a person who does nice things in the world. That's what we generally understand the Good Samaritan to be. It's so much more than that. Luke also shared a detail about the Good Samaritan. When he was first caught by the sight of the man, it says in verse 33 that when he saw him, look here, he was moved with pity. That comes from a very unique Greek verb, splankizomai, which comes from the world of animal sacrifice. In ancient Greece, when they sacrificed an animal, they took out the kidneys and the liver and the intestines, and now we're back into sort of Grossville in the sermon, okay? This is nasty. But they took all those guts out, and what they called that was the splankna. And then, listen to this, the Greeks noticed that one of the most unique human responses is compassion. When we see a problem which is not strictly ours, sometimes we ignore it, but other times it actually tears up our insides. We feel it in our kidneys and in our liver and in our intestines. And if you've ever had a child who is hurt and you see your child hurt, you want to go toward them with everything in you, right? That is splankizomai. And that's what happened to the Samaritan while he was walking on the road when he saw this other man's problems. That word is used only three other times in the New Testament. Two of the other times are in stories that Jesus told. You know the parable of the prodigal son? When the father saw his son at a distance, guess what he was moved with? Pity. Same word. It tore up his insides to see his son, not because he was angry at him, but because he loved him. And do some of you know the story that Jesus told about the king who had some servants who owed him money and one of them owed him an impossible debt and the king decided to forgive him his debt because the king was moved with, guess what? Pity, same word. 
Those are the other two literary figures. We've got the Samaritan and the father in the prodigal son story and the king who forgives. Only once is it ever used of a person. And it's when Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem and he sees those people and he sees sheep without a shepherd and it cuts him up on the inside like his kidneys and his livers, liver and his intestines are being twisted because he loves. The Samaritan is Jesus' self-portrait. And what he wants this man who's trying to justify himself to know is that yes, you will die, but guess what? Someone has come along the road who unlike the priest and the Levite has decided I will not ignore you. Instead, I will go to you. And there you are in your need and it's all you have and you're gonna die unless I help. But Jesus has decided to get his hands dirty with a mess that he most assuredly is not responsible for. But nonetheless, he takes responsibility for it. He lets our sin go upon himself as he cleanses us from our sin. And he literally, Jesus literally changes places for us. Have you heard this phrase? Jesus died for you? On your behalf, yes, but also in your place. Because Jesus came literally to switch places. It's all over the New Testament. He who was rich became poor so that we ourselves could become poor. He who was free allowed himself to be imprisoned so that we ourselves could be free. He who had everything emptied himself of all so that we ourselves could be the benefactors of everything. He who was alive allowed himself to be killed so that we who were dead in our trespasses and sin could be made alive. Jesus has switched places with that man and with us. And it has cost him. That's what love is. It's first and foremost the love that Jesus had for all of us and for the man who had arrogantly tried to trap Jesus with his questions. And the commitment from Jesus is, please listen to this, the commitment from Jesus to that guy and everybody else in the crowd and all of us is eternal. And there is nothing you can do to undo his act of love for you. It is steadfast and perfect in every way. Jesus has loved us with a love that sent him to the cross for us. And in his picture, he paints us and himself. The most important thing in my mind for what the world needs is that you and I would learn to have the right view of ourselves. I said that the second most important thing uh, is that you yourself are broken on the road unless you have help. Here's the most important, that Jesus has come. And he has done everything required. Now, Peter knew this too. That's how his letter, 2 Peter, begins. That everything that's required for life and godliness has been fully accomplished by Jesus for you. And so you don't need to worry about that any longer. But now what you need to do is to make every effort to support this gift of life with goodness. And goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection now, listen, with love. And that means that you are invited in Jesus' words only because you've already been saved by the Good Samaritan to go into this world like him and love. Uh, it's how the, the story ends. After this parable and his questions, Jesus wraps it up by saying very simply, Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And, and what the world needs is for us to go and do likewise. It needs for us individually to take responsibility for problems that are not our problems. It needs that. It needs us to be willing to get our hands dirty in someone else's mess 
That's our invitation. We will find true life when we do it. The world needs us sometimes to trade places so that our quality of life goes down because we choose to use what we have to bring someone else up. The world needs that. And it needs us to be willing to accept the cost to us individually and Renaissance Church as a whole to divest ourselves of some of what we have. And it needs us to be committed. And I am, I am so glad that I follow a Lord who invites me to tell you now to go and love. That that's what I get to say at the end of this series of sermons. That what the world needs is for you to go and love. It's the very best thing that anyone can say. It's exactly what you were made for and it's what the world needs. And when you do, you will find eternal life. All you need is love. Did anyone else hear the da, 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 da? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I could go on, but let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for the brilliance of Jesus' teaching and for the magnificent mysteries hidden in his stories. God, I thank you that I, on my own power, am like a man who's been beaten up, robbed, dehumanized, and left for dead on the road of life. God, would you help each one of us see the truth about ourselves that apart from intervention from the outside, we're doomed. But then, most emphatically, I thank you that you have come onto the road that we find ourselves on in Jesus to rescue us, to heal our wounds and to bind them up, to strengthen us by switching places. God, I thank you that you chose to take responsibility for our mistakes. And at such a cost. And I thank you that your commitment to us is forever. Would you help us own this truth and live by it so that we ourselves become in your power what the world needs. I pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.